Part 2, Chapter 11 of Israel's Faith, a Series of Lessons for the Jewish Youth by Nathan Solomon Joseph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Future Life To everyone, even to those on the brink of the grave, life has many interests, and the present moment is of paramount importance. When God made man of the dust of the earth, he meant him to have earthly interests, so that he might fulfill his mission as part of the work of creation. If all men were to pass their lives like monks, spending all their time in penance, prayer, and contemplation, neglectful of their duties as members of the human family, there would soon be an end to the human race. Happily for man, God has so constituted the human mind that the prevailing thought of life is life itself, life here on earth with its needs, its duties, and its enjoyments. But deeply implanted as is the love of life in every healthy human heart, it is not more deeply implanted than the hope and expectation of a future state. It is a thought that crops up very frequently and persistently in every thinking mind and no religious person should suffer the days to depart without bestowing more than a passing thought on the future of his soul. What does religion tell us about the immortality of the soul? The Pentateuch tells us enough to show that Moses must have been well versed in the doctrine, and that the silence of the early books of the Pentateuch upon the topic was due only to the fact that the doctrine was thoroughly established. Indeed, if one reads any work treating of ancient Egypt, it is clear that at the time of the Exodus, and even long before, the doctrine of a future state was known to the Egyptians, and played no small part in the inner and domestic life of that nation. It is therefore absolutely impossible that Moses, who was trained at the court of Pharaoh, could have been, as some have maintained, ignorant of the idea of the immortality of the soul. But it may be argued, why did not God, through his servant Moses, clearly and distinctly propound the important doctrine of immortality, promising undying happiness in a future existence as a reward of piety, and giving indications of the nature of those spiritual rewards, instead of promising long life and wealth? and all worldly blessings as the recompense of virtue. Truly a difficult question, but we may probably find a solution of the problem by imagining a converse state of things. Suppose that the Bible told us, without the slightest ambiguity, that there was an afterlife, that the soul was an immortal part of man, which, released from its earthly bounds, would enjoy happiness, or be doomed to misery in accordance with its deserts. What would be the result? In the first place, not a single disinterested action would be left to be performed, even by the best of men. Every prudent man would calculate the effect of each good deed he performed, or of each temptation he resisted, and would, as it were, keep a debit and credit account with his creator, even as it is, there is not too much disinterestedness in the world. Intertwined with patriotism, we see ambition. 
intermixed with honesty we find policy the fear of the law interwoven with religion we often find submission to fashion the sterling good deed the act of duty which is contrary to interest to sentiment to impulse to fashion and to inclination this is the act which deserves eternal reward but what act would be disinterested if the promise of heavenly reward were unmistakably clear and distinct the cool calculating man would be the best man but he would not be a good man in the sense in which we now understand the term he would be commercially good his good deeds would simply be good investments investments of which the profit though deferred was certain not only certain but when attained eternal but there would be no merit in this kind of goodness the object for which it would seem we were placed upon the earth would be annulled this world would be no test no place of trial to ascertain our worth it might be a test of our sordid prudence not of our moral worth the aim and object of our existence in this world would be frustrated next let us ask what end would have been served by a direct promise of immortality it would not have sufficed to have merely given the promise of a state of being which the mind cannot fully grasp the mere promise of eternal happiness would have been to the majority the promise of a phrase a mere vision not a tangible comprehensible reward we could not appreciate a promise of pleasures which belong wholly and solely to a spiritual state of existence but we can understand the pleasures of earth because they are pleasures experienced by the agency of the senses every one can appreciate such pleasures and therefore it is that we find in the bible material blessings held out as the recompense of well-doing our ancestors just delivered from the slavery of egypt were not a people with strong spiritual cravings the bible represents them while yet living amid miracles as lamenting the flesh-pots of egypt looking back with fond regret to the time when they did eat bread to the full calling to mind with greedy thoughts the fish which we did eat in egypt freely the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic men such as these would not have been attracted by promises of a spiritual happiness long deferred a different incentive had to be offered they were therefore promised rich harvests and overflowing granaries length of days and the blessing of children but though the pentioch contains unmistakable hints as to the immortality of the soul the later scriptures contain much more than hints sufficiently showing that the doctrine was not first learned in the babylonian exile but that it was accepted if not by the masses at least by cultivated minds king david in many of his psalms used its expressions which show that to him the soul's immortality was no unfamiliar doctrine in that beautiful psalm which is read in houses of mourning he says my heart is glad and my glory rejoices my flesh also shall rest in hope for thou wilt not leave my soul in the grave neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand there are pleasures for evermore 
Again, in the 17th Psalm, called the Prayer of David, after speaking with disdain of the prosperity of men of the world which have their portion in this life, he closes with the words, As for me, I will behold thy face by righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. In the 49th Psalm, which contains so powerful a homily on the vanity of wealth and fortune, the psalmist thus declares his belief in a future state. But God shall redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. The last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes contains the most pointed reference to the doctrine of the soul's immortality in the well-known words, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. With such expressions as these in holy writ, who can assert that the doctrine of immortality was unknown to the ancient Hebrews, and that the Jews at quite a late period of their history derived their knowledge of that doctrine from heathen and Christian sources? The doctrine must have been not only known to our people in primeval times, but must have been so far recognized as a self-evident fact, and so far interwoven in their natural belief as to have required no enforcement by the authority of divine revelation. And who can talk of annihilation of the soul, especially in these days when philosophers declare even matter to be indestructible, enforced by the conservation of energy, to be eternal in its effects? Shall physical force be everlasting, and the soul which, by the power of will, gives life to force, itself lack immortality? it cannot be. The rabbis tell us that when the supreme being, asked by Moses to show him his glory, caused all his goodness to pass before him, he opened to his astonished gaze the treasure-houses of heaven, pointing out to him, one after the other, the rewards in store for the righteous, but that when at length he exposed to view one treasure-house larger than all the rest, piled up with precious things beyond number, and Moses, in rapt astonishment, exclaimed, Lord, what is this great storehouse? God answered him, This is the storehouse of happiness for those who have no merit of their own. Such is the Jewish view of God's mercy to the undeserving, and surely it is no extravagant idea when we call to mind man's career on earth. He enters the world helpless and naked, loving hands receive him, tend him, clothe him, and feed him, loving hearts educate him, and however great the struggle of life, there is evident at every step and stage of a providence that guides him, unworthy though he be. Unworthy indeed, for since none are free from sin, if God were a vindictive being, as some religions would represent him, even the best of us would be struck dead long before we attained manhood. But he has no vindictiveness. He has declared that his ways are not as our ways, that as the heavens are higher than the earth, his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And he has declared himself merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Surely he who provided gentle hands and hearts to receive us on entering this world will provide a loving welcome for the soul, released from its earthly habitation, 
whether it be the soul of the sinner trembling for its future or the soul of the pious yearning for that perfection which the earth forbade and so when the time will come as come it must to all when death approaches though the parting from loved ones may be with tears and the severance of earthly ties may be with lamentations yet let there be no fear in the soul as it enters the presence of its maker for merited or not the loving mercy of god is the sure passport of every soul to heaven and happiness and yet the good will have the reward of their goodness and yet the wicked will be requited for their wickedness for god will by no means wholly clear the guilty man cannot be saved from the natural consequences of his sin of the reward in a future state we know nothing here and still we may perhaps gain some slight foretaste of its nature from the sense of spiritual delight we experience after the performance of a truly good unselfish act involving heavy sacrifice of the punishment in a future state we can know nothing here and still we may perhaps have some slight foreshadowing of its nature from the sense of remorse which follows the commission of a sin just as the grown man looks back on the foibles of his childhood and youth with contempt and perhaps disgust so may we well imagine the soul released from its earthly habitation burdened with remorse at its sin until god shall have purified it from its earthly stains and as the shares and proportions of reward meted out to each though there will be heaven for all immortality for all happiness for all through the boundless mercy of god the happiness will perhaps be greater or less not according to the measure in which it is bestowed but according to the measure in which it is deserved for it is the unselfish disinterested work that is truly satisfying to god the labor done without hope of profit fame or reward the work wrought for the glory of god and the good of man end of part two chapter eleven end of israel's faith a series of lessons for the jewish youth by nathan solomon joseph george alexander cochot editor